0: (laughs) okay welcome to radio zaza um yeah episode 11 we've made it past the 10 mark i think we're doing quite well actually yeah
1: um
0: but yeah daisy it's been it's been so long it's been almost a month since we recorded together you and i um in in fact it might even be a month since we last recorded together so i mean it's not like we haven't seen each other in that time but i mean now we're in I'm in tier four and you're in tier two now. Is that right?
1: What the difference uh, (laughs) a single train journey
0: can make. Goodness me. And I did come back before the tears changed, so I did, I did return legally, so that's allowed. But yeah, it's just unbelievable. Uh, so yeah, I'm in my pod tent, a representation of how restricted <laughs> and tiny my world has become.
1: Yeah, you're looking um, kind of uh, trapped in, in maybe uh, more than one way.
0: Yes, exactly. And this looks duvet is though, messing you know. up my hair. It's all right, there's pillows around. It's a duvet. I've got a hoover you know the the pole that you put on the end of a Hoover to make it long. I can't remember the tube that's <laughs> holding up the tent in one place. But um, we make Very good. do. We you make sort do. of
1: remind me of um, Hannah's got this kind of uh, Britney uh, ground control head headpiece on. Um, <laughs> oh, hey. It's, hey now. And it reminds now. me of the sort of um, like the officer's mess. You know, like you know in those old kind of war films. You know, like you get the the hero shot of the 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 fighter in in the jet, and it's like. Oh, I'm seen... in my
0: in like a fighter pilot, and I'm like. Yeah, exactly, a fighter pilot. To, Have you go... ever seen?
1: Um... <laughs> paul and pressburger's film a matter of life and death no i mean it's sorry, very i've seen it's very, very few films
0: yeah um but it's still, you that know, feels still... almost damning the way you said it like that
1: <laughs> it's a great it's a great film um and it's been a ad- it was adapted at the National Theatre into a stage production as well. Um but you sort of it's about this uh this this pilot that kind of goes down and his in his kind of dying words he's speaking to a woman on the radio called June and he's there in this burning plane he's like are you tell me one thing June are you are you pretty tell no I don't want to know I, I love you I love you June I love you <laughs> and then he uh, yeah. Don't want to ruin it too much, but he uh, he ends up wow. getting caught in the in the English fog, and death doesn't catch him and um, so he ends up going to go find June and see if she really is the love of and his finding life. Finding out if she's pretty,
0: yeah. Well, that. yeah, because when you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, in um, Airplane, when there's the guy with the drinking problem and he takes over the airplane to try and land it and he's got that little headset with a little mic yeah, yeah, around yeah. but then he's just pouring sweat off his face because it is very warm in this tent. So. Yeah, that'll
1: be us in approximately like 15 minutes time.
0: Yeah, don't you worry. Um, but yeah, what
1: have you been up to in the time between? Well, it's kind of getting... You know, getting to the end of the year, um, I think just trying to wind down, you know, every day is Christmas at this point, isn't it? Just making sure I have an adequate (laughs) stock of cheese and wine. um,
0: Have you bought and drunk all your Christmas wine yet? I would
1: say a large large portion of it is already... (laughs) Yeah,
0: we opened our Christmas Baileys already and we've been drinking... You just can't help it when there's nothing else there's nothing to do. Nothing else to do at this point.
1: But I was really, I loved uh, the the last episode with our special uh, special guest uh, Meg, Meg Roberts, um, the brilliant historian. I had a I had a really good time listening to it. But of course, I was like, hey, I want to
0: talk i want to talk back i have questions (laughs) yeah oh it was really sad like on the outside looking in but just just quickly actually i've remembered i forgot to introduce us i'm hannah bestwick and with me of course is the wonderful the notorious daisy thurston gent yes here we go again for another queer hour probably slightly less as this is the one just before Christmas um but yeah yeah it was really it was actually really sad to not have you on the episode last week because I knew that you'd have a lot of thoughts about the queerness of top hats
1: yeah I was um I was listening and it was just you know it was sparking loads of um you know my synapses were going and I was like oh that reminds me of this and I had loads of kind of follow-up questions and um you know I had to just kind of do the banter on my own in my room with my headphones on. Aww. Um but I thought I would actually, you know, pick up on um on some of the stuff that Meg was saying. And um I was sort of reflecting back the idea of um, you know, the top hat and um I loved hearing about how it's kind of navigated its way through history, you know, as an object and become kind of a staple of queer culture, um sort of unknowingly. Mm. Um and I just and I kind of was thinking about um my encounters with top hats and there's quite a lot of uh, connections between the the poetry scene um, and hosts in particular oh. and top hats. Um so it was sort of reminding me a lot of that. And there's a couple that come to mind, um, you know, and I was kind of questioning what the the symbolism is of a top hat, especially as a as a, a host. Um and, you know, is it that kind of a gentle nod to kind of showmanship?
0: Mm, and like an MC. Yeah,
1: exactly. And like what signifies, you know, okay, host, host mode. Um so I chatted to a couple of um, people on the on the london poetry scene um or, or, or poetry um from across the across the uk and um i don't think it's any uh i don't think it's a coincidence that um the people who the hosts that wear top hats are all uh queer in my examples um i could think about five or six examples and i was like okay they're queer and, and that's that person's queer and yep okay I, I think i'm seeing a bit of a pattern here Um. (laughs) Um. I don't know if you've ever been um to spoken word London. Uh. No. I I personally haven't. Um. Well, if you've um. So this is one of the the kind of biggest, um. uh, Well, hugely popular poetry night, open mic poetry night held in London. It's held in um Dalston, which is quite a queer area, and it's part of a sort Mm. of a, a. a global uh franchise i believe spoken word um paris spoken word istanbul but i I chatted to hannah gordon who's one of the hosts of um of the spoken word spoken word london strand um and i asked if there was a story behind um the top hat which the hosts always wear um and it turns out uh you know there was and um i was glad i was glad i asked because um it's definitely the top hat is definitely a, a staple of of the Spoken Word London event, Patrick Cash.
0: Is it the same hat that all of them wear or do they all have to bring their uh, own? It's
1: the same hat. So it's this one hat that okay. sort of belongs to Spoken Word London. And it started off basically, so the cool. tradition started with uh, David Barnes who founded Spoken Word Paris. Um, and he used a uh, a 19th century top hat that he found in a charity shop. Um, and then he, he wore it at the first ever event. So for whatever reason, this, this host was drawn to the top hat, uh, wore it for the first event and it kind of stuck. Um, and then when Pat Cash started up Spoken Word London, sort of followed this tradition, and the hat is kind of used as a signifier to to say like I'm the host, and the host is in the room, and when the hat appears, you know the poetry is imminent. And uh, fun That's fact good. that uh, Spoken Word London is actually on to their second hat of the event because the first one was um, was left on the tube accidentally by Pat's housemate. Oh no. <laughs> so- which is quite funny that is a real shame it's a real shame but they're onto to their second hat um and spoken word london actually had um sort of uh, a festival um where they uh, it was the anti-hate festival it was last year i think and um they actually exhibited the top hat as um you know as an object that represented the uh the event and people were encouraged to try it on take selfies uh, so it's actually become this kind of tool for social engagement which i think is quite cool that was
0: really cool Yeah. and well
1: you know while the night itself isn't explicitly queer um, all three of the hosts are and a large portion of the yeah. open mic performers are, uh, the audience and because the event is held in quite a notorious kind of DIY uh, queer venue called Vogue Fabrics in Dalston it's just got loads of kind of shiny glittery um, cocks all over the wall basically as soon as you walk in uh, so you know what you're going you kind of descend into this basement and there's just yeah. these glorious... it's just glorious not how i thought that
0: sentence was going to end but that sounds amazing um, it's, a, it's
1: a great it's a great little venue um yeah and uh yeah so i automatically associate the top hat with that that space and um with pat cash and hannah gordon and the other hosts um on the spoken mm. word scene that, that adopted the top hat for one reason or another and you know maybe they do subconsciously know that there is a connection you know between queerness um and and top hat
0: Mm. because it's almost like it's it's like it came up organically but but it almost feels like maybe there was some not not memory but some some inherent knowledge or something picked up somewhere that a top hat Mm. has queerness associated I think we're all we're all influenced by the things going on around us even if we don't acknowledge them consciously and so maybe the, being drawn to a top hat is because there's this kind of there's a, a knowledge mm. that it is for us <laughs> yeah this is a this
1: object is it's like camp objects that we spoke about you know right in the very first episode yeah yeah fruit hat yeah over. the fruit hat um and you know you were talking about um you were sort of talking about some of the other um the other objects which i'll go on to in a, in a second um other items of clothing sorry which i'll go on to a, into a second I also spoke to uh, Faye Roberts, who is another fantastic poet um, and host who uh, they adopt a, an array of hats uh, to kind of signify their onstage persona versus their sort of personal persona. And they also said that the top hat is also very good for just picking names out of. So if you're a host and you want to choose yeah. the open mic list, bam, it's it's up to the hat, you know, it's like the sorting hat of, <laughs> um, of spoken
0: word. Yeah, it's got a kind of magical property then. It's, yeah, you yeah. can't blame me, it's, it's the
1: hat. <laughs> Yeah. And Faye is a, is a sort of renowned performer across the UK. And also, um, they're known for hosting events such as Allographic, which is based in Cambridge, Poetry Kapow, um, mm. and the Cambridge strand of Hammer and Tongue as well. Um, but I think of them hosting really cool. um, a cabaret show at the Edinburgh Fringe that was called Other Voices, um, a sort of poetry mm. cabaret, where they wore this kind of really stunning red topper to kind of complete this this very flamboyant outfit you know, they always wear like super high kind of goth boots and, you know, great waistcoats, things like that. Like really incredibly dapper.
0: And they also used Yeah, yeah. I think I've seen I've seen them um host before at the the Cambridge Strawberry Fair. Yeah, exactly. So the red
1: topper was yeah, was bought at the Strawberry Fair actually and, and typically um say that um said that they always haggle the price of a top hat. So every hat <laughs> they've ever bought is haggled down and, and this one was no exception. Nice. <laughs> so they also um they used to have a-, a black top hat as well. And this ended up apparently uh, story goes that it ended up on permanent loan. Yes, the story goes that it ended up on permanent loan to someone who was doing a late night Victorian poetry set uh, in the dingy underground tunnels of the Banshee Labyrinth. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's where no, a lot of that? the poetry and comedy at uh, the Edinburgh Fringe is held at. It's this uh, wonderful venue. Is it
0: is it like a pub or is it an actual it's labyrinth under the ground? It's sort of a pub under the at ground? the beginning. Uh,
1: the first level is a pub and then you go down into these, into these tunnels, these kind of cellars um, and it's I mean it's fantastic you can imagine a Victorian poetry night just being it's the perfect you know dripping kind of it's a bit damp kind of like a wine cellar um, a dungeon it's a dungeon essentially Um, (laughs) Okay. um, Okay. so like you know Victorian (laughs) poetry set happening there and um, apparently this performer was uh, was struggling somewhat because they had they had Tails, um, tailcoat and a, and a cumberbund, but no hat, uh, which Faye recognised. Uh, can you believe it? A real shame. Uh, and Faye said, "You know what? Uh, this is what you need." And it turned out turned out that this top hat was the much needed missing element. And apparently, um, yeah, Faye handed it over, and, and the event um, really picked up. Um, so there we have it: the magical and undisputed power of the top hat uh, continues its crucial work. Yeah, definitely. So that's that's just some of the stuff that that came out uh, when I was listening to um, to the episode last time and so i also started looking at some of the other queer signifiers in fashion um and i've really only just started to kind of scratch the surface i'm sure there's a whole like host of examples so obviously you mentioned flannel shirts uh, beanies and i can't believe that you know you didn't go into a um you know the topic of the heterosexual colonization of the doc martin boot um but we'll leave that uh till a bit later sorry
0: yeah you're right I missed
1: it yep <laughs> um yeah I, I kind of always assumed it was kind of common knowledge that a kind of thick punk lace-up boot was a kind of signpost to queerness but
0: yeah well I think it because it, it's like the the um it's big big boots not just Doc Martens big boots um and there's definitely something to that because there's a a, a, i think it's a graphic novel that i almost bought at the weekend called like something like a girl's guide to practical shoes Mm -hmm. which is an lgbt like a queer guide to lgbt fashion or something like that and it has this picture on the front of this foot in a very big practical boot and it's it's definitely associated with queerness absolutely you're right yeah
1: we're just taking that one back guys (laughs) so the ways in which fashion trends can influence culture um, is is very intrinsic and i think sort of the queer narrative alongside that is is particularly quite interesting. Um, so let's jump to the 1970s in this kind of era of punk um, and fashion designers were starting to recognise the potential of uh, of the t-shirt as a, as a blank canvas for political statement. So I was doing a bit of research in, research into Vivian Westwood's um, iconic sex boutique um, on the King's Road in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. v- uh, Vivian Westwood, like a number of uh, her designs caused quite a lot of uh, controversy at the time. There was a graphic image on one of her t shirts in 1975 of two cowboys, um, naked from the waist down, uh, touching penises, um, which Ooh, just just touching, just kind of greeting like each a other. A mini sword fight, yeah, just kind of just they were, you know, I think that one of them is adjusting maybe like the necktie or something, but they're just completely naked from the waist down, um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, one of, um, the shop attendants from the sh- from the boutique uh, was stopped while walking through Chelsea and later fined for indecent exhibition as a result of what was on uh, the
0: t-shirt. Oh my god. Cuz didn't Sid Vicious used to work in that shop? Yeah,
1: yeah, Sid Vicious. Um a couple yeah, of yeah. other um sort of punks and and rockers. Big punk names, yeah. yeah. Um and while it wasn't explicitly a-, a queer space, um it was definitely a pu- you know, a punk space, a DIY space and yeah, and you, you kind of think, so 1975, in 1967, it was um, homosexuality was partially decriminalised. And so this is a little, you know, a little bit later. And, and you can still see that there's still this disparaging kind of public attitude towards it, you know, yeah. to actually be arrested for indeci- indecency, um, indecent exhibition, just because of what is on your T-shirt. So sort of thus the, the T-shirt became this this canvas for kind of political expression mm. and political power. So if we're talking about that, we, we need to mention uh, Catherine Hamnet, who um, has quite a big influence on queer culture, famous for oversized T-shirts with large black block lettering um, and slogans. So she launched a, um, a series in 1983, and these were quickly kind of uh, adopted by quite notable LGBT bands, pop bands such as, you know, Wham um, and Queen and bands like that. Um and thing the slogans would be like choose life so you, which you may have seen um George Michael famously wore his his white choose life T-shirt in the music video for Wake Me Up Before You Go Go oh um, that's awesome and also the same the same T-shirt appeared in Queen's video for Hammer to Fall uh worn by Roger Taylor and Taylor wore a couple of Hamlets T-shirts actually um wore the uh quite political worldwide nuclear ban now um shirt in mm. um, Queen's historic appearance in the uh. Rock in Rio festival in Brazil so quite a large platform to have you know a bold political statement if you want to get your point across you don't yeah. slap it on a t-shirt
0: mm, mm. and
1: there was kind of a spin-off series of t-shirts made uh, the Frankie says Frankie says relax um t-shirts as well yep um which came out in uh, a year later in 1984 uh, there was a british record label called uh, Z- ZTT And uh, somebody from the label, Paul Morley, uh, designed these t-shirts for uh, the record-labeled band Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who famously sing about uh, sex. And and... so Morley has stated that these designs were like consciously based on Hamnet's slogan t-shirts, the original ones, uh, because she was very, you know, she was Mm. quite punk and DIY. And she said like she wanted her t-shirts to be ripped off and for people to put their own spin on it and because that just supports the you know the notion of of diy culture and um i think that's that's pretty punk and that's that reminds me of, of queer culture you know borrowing and stealing and taking back and um you know using bad press in order to make a name yeah so i was i was thinking about what, why queer bands and, and queer um icons you know such as george michael and, and people in and queen were were obsessed with these slogan t-shirts um and I guess it's just a way to to kind of yeah to get your point across in a in in the clearest way possible um you know you can't argue with it yeah
0: I wonder if there's also something like I don't know like as a as a performer or a musician you can't really I just feel like if you want something said during a performance you need it on you need it somewhere where people can read it over and over again Mm. because especially like in the the sort of what's it, I don't know what you call it the bit between the songs when you're just sort of chatting to the audience. If you try and make a political statement there, people are just like, "Get on with your singing!" Like we came here to see your songs, mm-hmm. not your not your political statements. But if you wear it on a t shirt, people can't not look at yeah, that. Yeah, you can't ignore they it. They can't and not omit it from you.
1: history. If you've got you know f- visual evidence of something, you can't um, you know in, yeah. a, in an interview or something that's maybe televised, you could maybe kind of edit it or manipulate it somehow. Mm. but you know if it's on a t-shirt that's <laughs>
0: that's your that's yeah. your message and it's it yeah and it makes me think a lot of those um you know some people are bi get over it some people are trans yeah. get over it t-shirts too right yeah
1: i mean it's definitely yeah. still used today it's a it's a a political what's the word it's a, a technique isn't it really and it's a way of starting yeah, it's conversation a real cool, yeah. um, supermodels such as uh naomi campbell have appeared in hamlet's garments um so there Ooh. was a a, f- a famous one, um, the famous slogan "Use a condom" was uh, kind of plastered over Naomi Campbell in kind of in gleaming diamante gems uh, on the catwalks of London Fashion Week, and this because wow. uh, Catherine Hamnet was uh, trying to raise awareness, um, you know, f- for the uh, for AIDS basically, um, and mm. is a kind of long long time uh, long standing champion of AIDS awareness, and actually designed a range of uh, boxer shorts in the 1980s with with condom pockets. Um, in them uh featured in them and they're still featured in her collections today uh, so she was a real you know champion of um aids awareness and you know promoting safer sex the huge slogan use a condom on one of the most famous supermodels in the world is quite you know pretty iconic that's powerful it's really powerful yeah powerful and iconic is she she is she qu- queer i can't remember if you said no she was. I, she's not but she's a, a bloody good ally she's an activist yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Awesome. so fashion you know can be a, a highly political and, and radical act um and these slogan t-shirts that she designed were all drawing attention to kind of social, political and environmental issues of the time. And the bold text was really difficult to miss. And a lot, you know, of course, a lot of people, um, this resonated with a lot of people in the queer community. Um, so slogan t-shirts, high fashion. Um, What else was I going to talk about? Patterns. So did you know there is actually a uh, queer tartan? Tartan, which is obviously, um, I didn't, yeah. quite a, a, you know, associated with punk um, and apparently can be associated with queerness as well that was really cool yeah and it's like officially registered um in the scottish register of tartans uh, which is based in Edinburgh. <laughs> is that just what
0: is that just like a big, big uh, flip book yeah. of all the tartans <laughs> Bit, just a list okay i was imagining one of those carpet books that you get with all oh, the I'm, samples i'm sure it is
1: um so it's on um it's online oh God, but I'm, I'm pretty so. sure there's you know there must be a physical copy um i want to get the queer tartan sampler oh God, yes. so it's called the pride of lgbt yeah. Uh, designed by brian oh, wilton nice. and in the in the scottish register of tartans um there is a note that goes with it uh, to say that the design pays uh, homage to all those involved in the new york protests in uh, 1969 and is based on the new york city tartan says so i mean there's there's hundreds there's hundreds of tartans um for yeah. every clan you can imagine um mm. and so it's based on the new york city tartan incorporating the rainbow spectrum of bright colors uh used to identify that movement around the world so you know it's it's not kind of it's not actually that garish, but if you look closely it's made up of lots of tiny little rainbows. Oh, that's so cute. And I think it's quite um what's quite special about uh, the queer tartan is that historically tartans are associated with um like a very specific clan um or family um and can sometimes even be restricted to uh, who wears a particular print. Um you know, there's yeah. some tartans uh, that are reserved specifically for the royals, for example. And you're not supposed to even yeah, wear them wow. when you're outside of that clan. So to kind of have uh, an LGBT specific one is quite, you know, quite revolutionary, actually. Mm. So it's like
0: the tartan of our family, of the queer family. Yeah. And
1: I think that, we're, you know, I think we're definitely a, a clan, aren't we? You know, the LGBT community is definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, I think it's a really nice way to, to signify it to the community. Um, yeah. I guess just kind of seeing that that tartan um, and knowing that you were part of something um, you know something about it being instantly recognizable you know or recognizable to those in the know i guess yeah and i'm gonna try and get some yeah I, I think yeah it'd be amazing wouldn't it um I, yeah it'd be really cool. signifiers that i think are really important um you know we were talking about queer cryptids and, and polari and, and lgbt slang and, and the kind of language signals and i just think seeing yourself you know in in every aspect of life you know print and tartan (laughs) you know and to know that there is something specific like designated um for the LGBT community within that I think is really nice
0: yeah I think so I think that's really nice Yeah. yeah
1: so I will talk I will talk about Doc Martens okay because
0: that's fine you're allowed Because I
1: think out of all the objects um and out of anything in fashion I think maybe they're the modern day top hat in some ways um you know I think they're also an item that is very separate uh, from the body. And so they almost come with like a personality of their own, I would say. Mm. Um I guess the obvious stereotype is that of the dyke and Sure, yeah. I know th- I know the book you were referring to. Um the graphic novel and I think they're also referenced in um in uh, Alison Bechdel's Fun Home uh, graphic novel as well where there's a song dedicated to Oh, I bought that yeah, one. There's a song dedicated to um to the kind of the lace-up boots uh when this you know visibly kind of quite masculine figure arrives uh in a cafe during their childhood and they and they see this person and they go oh my god that's it that's how I want to that's me and it's kind of a moment of realization from quite an early age of saying that that's it that's what I want to look like um so yeah so that's yeah, that it's
0: like ring of keys yeah exactly yeah. it's in
1: that it's in that song so you've got um so i'm going to reference um a theatrical theorist um called Eleanor Marjolis, um, now to back me up. And uh, in her mm-hmm. analysis of shoes in performance, she notes that docks are traditionally seen as uh, very masculine, as work shoes, uh, often used in construction and intended uh, f- to be suitable for heavy duty. Um, so these are not dainty yeah. shoes and thus uh, they result in um, sort of a different behavioural pattern when these are worn. You know, he- they're heavy material, often steel toed, and mm. they're not often. And not only associated with masculinity um or masculine work types but also with the opportunity for the wearer to perform these tasks you know you're ready for work um you know if you drop a steel crowbar on your foot it's all right you carry on and as well as uh changing the overall you know appearance it also changes the physicality um and you, you kind of end up producing that iconic heavy stompy walk
0: mm. um you're not tiptoeing around like on high exactly. heels. You're like stomping,
1: yeah. Um, in this, you know, in the same way that you could, you, you know, he- high heels and stilettos for a drag queen are a political act, and you know they're worn to to change uh, the physicality of, of mm. that person wearing them. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I think docs are viewed as sort of the epitome of uh, anti-mainstream fashion rebellion, and that's something that many outcasts in the queer community can relate to, I think. The brand itself, uh, Dr. Martin's, has a long-standing history with uh, youth subculture and, you know, very working class roots. And this wasn't really mm. forced by kind of marketing ploys, but rather that subcultures such as, you know, queer punks and gay skinheads and androgynous dykes adopted them and they sort of claim them to say yeah. these are ours.
0: Yeah, you see it in their advertising now like the um the posters that they had on the underground recently is like punks and queers and and sort of alternative. It's just it's like an alternative marketing mm. system, um approach, you know. It's like worn out docs that they show in their pictures, yeah. not just like the pristine new white trainers. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's kind of that history that I think makes them so iconic and the fact they are yeah, they are scuffed, they are rugged, they are associated with punks and queers and, and dykes and skinheads and, um, mm. you know, working. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote here from Finch Collins, who wrote um, an essay, um, part of the Objects as Text text series, um, which kind of f- focuses on quite a few queer objects, actually. Um, so I would recommend reading those mm. and said so the following statement. The usage of Doc Martens by queer people highlights the duality of identity signalling and identity construction. Gender is made visible Mm. through repeated actions within a matrix of social meaning. Through Doc Martens, queer masculinity is shown to not be innate, but to be continually realised and affirmed. So I think that's That's who said that again? Uh, Finch Collins, and it's part of the series um the essay series objects as texts shall uh drop mm. in as a link yeah
0: that's you know really that
1: cool. kind of con- yeah gender con construction and gender identity construction um and i think you know as with the top hat it's something that you can take on and off um it's a separate um kind of entity of its own but it represents you know this whole mm. heap of uh, history and queer culture yeah. that comes with it
0: yeah yeah, that's really cool.
1: So yeah, I've obviously just scratched the surface, but um, yeah, there's some kind of no, I love you know, that fashion, fashion for dummies, or um, political fashion for dummies, uh, which I obviously am. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> you are not. I am not. You are no such thing. But that, yeah, that was that was incredible. That was amazing. I and I do I do think I'm going to buy some tartan actually, some of that queer tartan. A friend of mine um, who's who's very punk. He has his family tartan on his ripped. Like denim jacket under the mm. arms, so I'm gonna uh, get some queer queer tartan and put it on my yeah, jacket, some my patches. denim jacket. And so those in the know will go, hey, oh, definitely, <laughs> hey, queer tartan, I see you. I'll cut out lots of little squares and then we'll we'll put them on a, on a store <laughs> or something. <laughs> that was so cool. Yeah, there's such and, a lot of yeah, crossover between, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, between
1: mm. uh, punk and and queerness and and DIY and and fashion and you sort of see I kind of thought queerness was quite kind of anti-fashion but maybe it's just anti-mainstream fashion
0: yeah I think you're right because because fashion isn't like obviously there's one thing that is fashion as a as an industry that's pushing products Mm. and another thing is fashion as a as a system of of self-expression and I think that like fashion as clothing is so important in that respect because it completely shapes and creates the person that you're seen mm-hmm. as. and um, you know, that's why it's so important to feel that you can wear what you want to wear. Like it took so many times of like walking past the menswear section before I finally went mm-hmm. in. And like um, you know, it's taken friends of mine years to finally ask for or order themselves a dress um to kind of finally feel that they can express their femininity as a mm-hmm. man. And you know there is this this overarching dictation of what is right for a person to wear based on what their perceived uh, gender is, but there's also something innate about how we want to express ourselves based on what we yeah. wear or like through what we wear. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. And I think that all this ties into it. You know, the top hat, the Doc Martens, like these are quite powerful or have been previously quite powerful indicators of masculinity, say. And it's no wonder that they are so popular with queer women mm. of being like, masculine doesn't belong to men. Like, we want to, like, express that part of ourselves too. You know, the work boots yeah. for working men. Okay, we're going to wear those too now, so mm. suck it. <laughs> like, you know? And I think that it's it's really important to kind of be able to to do that.
1: Yeah, so where the, where the top hat kind of represents that. You know the dandy and the kind of the dapper. I guess the the Doc Martin is maybe more down in the <laughs> down in the dumps and um, you know closer to the gritty
0: culture. Mm, and that's that's an incredible like uh, flip side to it. And honestly, maybe that's the answer that that Meg's looking for about what is the the queer item for the for the lower classes. It's the Doc. Yeah. Okay, I'm it? gonna
1: I'm gonna set her off on maybe that, on that tangent. <laughs>
0: yeah exactly no she's got a phd to do listen <laughs>
1: fuck the phd
0: do the shoes do the shoes do the shoes <laughs> uh no that's really please cool. don't actually um, uh, dismiss yeah. your
1: phd is very important work thank you very much you're a br- brilliant brilliant historian <laughs>
0: It's been such a time, Daisy. Because you'll find out, I've been researching this on my work laptop, and I don't know if that necessarily was the right thing for me to be doing, um, because my my personal laptop is just so old; it's really slow. But yeah, you know, I mentioned I bought fun home this mm-hmm. weekend. Um, I went shopping. I went to gaze the word, and I uh, I bought good choices. <laughs> so all, throughout the day, I bought myself six books, and I bought one book as a gift for somebody else. That's so funny. clearly, it was Christmas for me and not for That's anybody fine.
1: else. Can't see anyone anyway.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. And my par- my family don't want any presents this year, so I'm just donating to charity for them. So, um, you know, presents for me and that was yeah. nice. And I bought one of the books that I bought was Fun Home, but the other one that I bought in um gaze the word that was a proper book book was my brother's husband. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. Okay. So it's it's seems like and and I, I think that it is a really lovely it's a manga okay which, mm. which was serialized in a magazine called Monthly Action um but it's broadly about this relationship between a single father Yachi uh, and his daughter Kana and then Mike Flanagan who is a Canadian <laughs> who is the the Canadian husband of Yachi's estranged and recently deceased twin brother okay mm. so he comes to meet so Mike goes to meet the twin brother of his recently deceased husband yeah yep okay yep would you so yeah that's the book it's it seems lovely it's about like learning about different cultures about learning to love each other and accept differences and all that sort of thing very sweet very sweet illustrations and it's Mm -hmm. uh, written by this author called Tagame Gendoro. and I was in Gaze the word uh went to get my purchases went to the desk and the cashier was like oh man such such a beautiful book and it's so different to that to his other works and I was like what what do you mean and he's like well normally he weak. does all this <laughs> yeah he was like he normally does all this very graphic bdsm type stuff muscle bound porn with you know amazing amazing drawings he i was at the manga exhibition and he was there and it was fantastic and i was like cool because <laughs> i uh but I looked up because I was intrigued, and I was like, "I don't know what this is about." Um, By the way, this whole bit is going to be quite scattered because it was just a lot of a lot of random thoughts have been happening since um, since the weekend when I did buy it. But um,
1: (laughs) this is the last episode of the last episode of the year. It's going to be a little bit chaotic as we roll out at the end of this. (laughs) Just roll off the edge of the year. Yeah, it's twenty (laughs) twenty. Yeah, no apologies. Exactly.
0: Um, Yeah, so I looked up the author, Genjiro Tagame. I'm going to just call him Tagame um, from here on because it's his last name. And he does indeed mostly do pornographic mangas, um, Mm -hmm. which are different to hentai um, for some reasons. I'm not sure why, but they are different. And it's a pornographic manga about these like really buff, taut men and they get into all sorts of sexual mischief, um, primarily with lots of bondage. Mm Mm-hmm. Lots of tying up and the men usually in these kind of uh, positions of physical and mental submission. Um, and he he writes he also writes stories about Nazi prisoners, bestiality, incest, scat, permanent body modification, Japanese World War II soldiers being captured and tortured by Chinese liberation groups, which is like quite intense. Yeah, quite that's definitely in- quite far away
1: from the family friendly stuff that maybe you were going for.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and just not not was not not what I was expecting to find. Or, or yeah, it was just there was a lot more to it than I thought. And so I didn't really, didn't really know what to do with that information. So I kept reading. Um, And so Tagame was born, he was born in uh, 1964 into a family descended from samurai, which is really cool. Um, And he studied graphic design at university and then went on to work as a commercial director. He said that in an interview with Vice, um, so I read this article in Vice by Kaz Senju, and I also read a few Wikipedia articles about like, what this is what that is what this art style is who he is his background and all that kind of thing um he interestingly said his sexuality first became tied up with bondage when he was watching planet of the apes and charles heston gets stripped naked and dragged by a leather collar around his neck and he was like oh hello what's this about
1: what a thing to hone in (laughs) on the leather collar specifically
0: I know and um, so he just he just was into it from then on and he was like he was a child at that point so he was in like uh, I think it was probably secondary school or something I think it called elementary school I'm not actually sure what age that is I probably Mm. should look that up but then while he was in university he took a trip to Europe and found the American leather magazine drummer um, which he was super into because there was lots of really like buff, muscular men with beards being kind of sexy and lots of uh, drawings by the artist Bill Ward who he said was uh, very influential. Like I looked up the drawings by Bill Ward and honestly I couldn't really draw the connection between what I saw of Tagame's um, artwork and because I I accidentally looked up some of his BDSM drawings on my work laptop and I was like, oh no, oh no, quick undo, undo Um, and uh i can't i can't quite see the connection but i think um basically from reading his interviews uh interview in vice it seems that that um it's not so much about the style of the drawing but mm-hmm. more that the men in it um being really muscular and buff wasn't at all the fashion in um japanese art up to that point okay and so you know it was a complete exposure to this other kind of masculinity or, or this sort of machismo i think
1: mm, kind of hyper masculinity
0: Yeah, exactly. That kind of like beyond what is realistic or real, um, just hyper, hyper masculine men. And he started publishing erotica under a pen name, um, the name that he uses, uh, Jendoro Tagami, as of 1986. And by the time 1994 rolled around, he was living off the profits of his drawings and writings, the sexy, sexy stories and the sexy, sexy uh,
1: writing.
0: People were so into it. Um, And like from what i can see like his art has kind of always been featured specifically in in gay genre magazines and queer j- magazines um and but he is additionally noted as like a, he's a historian art historian and an archivist of gay japanese erotica and mm-hmm. he's edited two volumes uh of art books about the history of gay erotic art in japan from the 1950s to present mm. uh the book was from the 1950s to present he wasn't editing it all that time um and then he he didn't start creating like all ages mango until like the mid tens uh like 2010s um and created the first of his um non-erotic works which was uh my brother's husband and another one uh, our colors um which is about a closet, uh, our colors is about a closeted second year high school student um mm. who is alienated from his peers due to their homophobia and he meets an older man who runs a cafe and they kind of form this intergenerational friendship which is oh, nice. um, really lovely and uh, those intergenerational gay friendships are so important i think for being able to see yourself kind of grow up and 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 see that you can be happy and that you will yeah, make definitely. it and you will get there you know it's a really nice thing a really nice topic to depict Yeah, definitely. And it just, um, it makes me think a little bit of like, um, my partner's across the road neighbours are an older lesbian couple, and how much I wanted to be friends with them. And I've, I've made us be friends with them now. But I just, it's just so important to have those like, older queer friends Mm -hmm. and have that kind of role model to look up to i just yeah it's really important yeah for sure but his his art style is so it's it's really interesting it's like really crisp and clear and some of the examples that i saw it was really like bright and vibrant and like Mm. just actually really nice to look at it's really good really beautiful art it's always these really burly strong macho men like i said yeah um the guys with beards it was unheard of in japan and so with his new art style, Tagame developed Kumake, which is like bear type, they called it in Japan. So um, okay. he kind of created a version of, of bears in, in Japanese gay art, which is really cool. He's been called the most influential creator of gay manga in Japan to date, hmm. the most talented and most famous author of sadomasochistic gay manga. And his depiction of musc- of like men as muscular hairy, and hairy, hmm. like hyper-masculine, like you said, it's been cited as the catalyst of, for a shift in fashion among gay men in nineteen oh, uh, really? ninety-five. Yeah, so there was a previous tr- uh, like trend or um, fashion for gay men to be like these clean-shaven, slender called uh, uh, bishonen uh, stereotypes, to- and moving away from that towards a tendency for masculinity, chubbiness, bear type. Mm. You know, the sort of mm. slightly more chunky uh gay men and um you know it's not all been praised that he has been criticized for his his work being just too it just being just um pornographic. An S- S- yeah s&m theater violent lacking complex storylines but mm-hmm. um but there is a lot of you know erotica in in
1: japanese art and you know that's a that's a whole topic of its own right you know
0: yeah exactly there's a whole tradition of, of of erotic art it's not like he was the first person to come along and think about drawing people doing it yeah. it's just that he he's drawing about a very specific thing that he is interested in yeah. and i think you know that's that's his business really <laughs> yeah. um and i was i was actually so this Bishonen um idea too the the young sort of the i think it it has comparisons to the ideal youth uh you know mm-hmm. is is a person who is quite feminine or like more more genderly ambiguous genderly gendered ge- ambiguously gendered mm-hmm. um usually slim clear skin but also being like very talented very smart slender graceful like um a very ambiguous person mm. and it seems that um so one of the things as well I, I i went down that rabbit hole a little bit and the bishonen do really well with the female readership okay. okay so female readers really like the kind of more feminine gentler looking men but tagame has gone for these like super hyper masculine men and really tried mm. to like and and has really shifted that perspective of what is um a kind of attractive acceptable gay man yeah um and and i think that though the, the bishounen will always have a place in in like gay society because it, it there's loads of parallels with like twinks and, yeah. and like more feminine men and it also re- really made me think of like adonis who is a, uh, described as the ideal beautiful youth mm. so bishounen i think directly uh, translates as like beautiful young man okay and uh, regardless of that like that will still have its own area its own genre of of I don't know, pornographic manga and also hentai but um tagame really seems to have pushed the boundaries of what is acceptable mm. um for men and what is attractive for men in in the fashion and archetypes within within japanese gay culture mm. and and i was kind of so it, it is extreme like some of his drawings and some of his stories most of them are quite extreme in their storytelling and 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 what happens in them you know there's like students taking teachers as as sex slaves and things like that is a lot of stuff it's pretty heavy in there but um so he he described it in the vice article as uh interview as not necessarily a, an expression of like what he wants to do mm. and not necessarily an expression of like something he's going to try and achieve yeah but not direct, it is an expression and... Exactly. But it's, although, like, regardless of the fact that he's into BDSM, like, that, that, of course, plays into why he's drawing these things. But it's rather, he describes it as an act of creation in the highest form of respect, a uh, creation of a symbol of his belief. I believe pornographic art has the same characteristics as religious art. Porn is a search for the perfect erotic expression. Okay, so that's... Mm. slight paraphrasing there so it's not a direct quote um but basically he's saying like i want to create this symbol for my interests or, or what i think is erotic and i'm going to take that to the highest and most perfect extent that i can yeah it's not that i want to necessarily do that but i'm just exploring what that line of i don't know line of questioning would yeah really pushing in. the
1: boundaries that like there's no mis- misconception i guess <laughs> if it's that you know that in your face
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sort of coming to the end of these rambling thoughts now, but what I thought was, what I didn't quite understand, what and I it is interesting, it's very interesting, one of the things i didn't quite understand was that in the vice article he mentions wanting to publish his family friendly stories under his own name mm-hmm. his his actual name because he wanted to let people know that it's okay to be out and proud to be gay and japanese to be mm-hmm. to like not have shame about who you are or even like what you're into and to just be yourself and love what you love and i think that that's a really honorable and beautiful thing to do yeah absolutely but whenever I go onto like Wikipedia or something, it says that Jenjoro uh, Tagame is his pseudonym and I can't find his real name. So I don't know <laughs> if there's been like one error in an article and then it's been copied over and over and over and that Jenjoro Tagame is his name or if it is in fact a pseudonym. And I just I tried Googling um, Tagame real name and it just didn't come up with anything on any article. So there's there's I'm a bit confused about the naming, but Tagame is the name of the book. That I've got my brother's husband, so yeah, he wants. He's trying to do something to influence, not just porn, but overall acceptance and and sort of attitudes towards gay mm. men and what is acceptable, what is what is attractive, what is beautiful or or erotic.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, diversity and and sex positivity are, are definitely something that I associate with queerness over um uh, maybe heterosexuality.
0: Yeah. Definitely, you know, like it's there's just a like... lot of
1: crossover with, yeah, with with the kink scene, and you know, you see that first and foremost in the, in the pride parades, don't you? You know, yeah, they people have people in the in the leather kink sections, and it's like, oh, right at the front, okay. you know, and it's not kind of this shameful, uh, kind of hidden thing. It's about, yeah, being proud, and um, mm. yeah, I think you know, sex positivity is is a huge part of our, you know our queer culture. Um, not to mm. say that every bookseller should assume. That, yeah, that everyone's every, into it. That everybody I is think... just like ready to talk about it. But... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just, I yeah, I was wondering about that. I was thinking like, what? I think he just was really excited that I was buying the book because I don't, yeah. I don't think I particularly projected BDSM vibes that day. I was just in my little hat and my barber just yeah. hanging out in the gay bookshop. I, don't know, I feel little... like it's undoing. I think
1: it's constantly undoing shame um, mm. and this kind of tapestry of shame that we we still live in, unfortunately, um, to some extent. Mm. Um, yeah all of us you know th-
0: yeah exactly and it's not even you know his tagame's bdsm kind of interest is it seems from what the way he talks about it it seems very intrinsic it seems very natural for him especially as he you know he realized it at a young age or like he just had this this moment of of realization or this mm. moment of, of of finding something sexual at a time when he was he was quite young he was developing his sexuality and that has
1: you know sexual led awakening. to
0: yeah it's led to this kind of I don't know this interest this path this path that he's on and that's that's fine and like you said sex positivity if he been much more closeted there's not that's mm. it's not good to feel shame about something and 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 it might have resulted in him so there's People who are closeted about their their kinks or their fetishes, it can come come to a point sometimes where they it's acted out without consent because mm-hmm. it's they haven't been able to be open or honest or talk about it with some with people just as a normal al- element of who they are or with their, with their sexual partners or anything. and it can build up to a point where it is acted out without consent. and so regardless of what your interest is, it should be without shame. To be able mm. to talk to it, and you like, you'll find someone else that's into what you're into.
1: Yeah, huge advocacy for the kink scene as well. Um, you know, around the world, right? As, as long as mm. you know, there's a, a designated space. There is a designated space for for a lot of, um, you know, consensual acts um within yeah. sex and um, yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's incredibly important.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, even even just being gay was considered um, you know, a deviant form of sex. Mm for yeah. the longest time and, and it is in many places still and so you know any any form of shame around sex can be so damaging to people because you can't you can't help it and that's the whole thing is like it, it your interests develop or like can your sexual interest can be set so young mm. you can't you can't help what you're attracted to or what you find turns you on and yeah. the only thing to do is like is to be able to to manage your your drive or like to find someone who's into what you're into or like whatever so there's the shame is so unhelpful and it's so restrictive and it I just think, you know, it's important to, I just think that what, what he's done has been really cool and his interests, yeah. you know, as much as it, it may not be for me, like I think he's pos- he's had a really positive influence on, on the world through doing what he does and through yeah, being through, through open and well. being like, yeah. And through art, through like, yeah, art and, and storytelling and just, he's got these two, he's also got these two really lovely family-friendly books about being gay and sort of like coming out well being queer and coming out and accepting yourself and loving yourself and loving everyone around you and that's really cute and cool and i'm really excited to read my brother's husband
1: and yeah. that's yeah that's
0: all i wanted to talk about
1: oh that sounds great I, I yeah i can't wait to i'll definitely look it up and look into it a little bit more Um mm. you have to drop the links in i'd love to find out a yeah bit more about that
0: uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll link um, the the Vice article because it is it's a really good interview. Like it's really interesting to sort of hear hear his perspective on like why he does things, how he does them, like where it's come from. Yeah. you know,
1: yeah. No, I think it's really important to have um, people championing, championing um, queerness and and you know other uh, practices and and body types, especially in you know in in cultures where it, it was and is you know a deviant to be to be gay mm. and to be queer um yeah exactly yeah, awesome. are you
0: looking up his pictures right now
1: uh I, yeah i am i was having a little look um little bit <laughs> what do you think <laughs> yeah interesting a little bit
0: saucy indeed
1: <laughs> yeah i was also gonna uh, do a little shout out i was just kind of looking up our um our, our social our social media handles um, yeah please do to just give a little 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 shout out that we are on social media now um we're on twitter at Zaza radio radio zaza um it did that automatically
0: for us so um uh, did it? Zaza yeah. Radio? Yeah, I didn't choose that. Well, I did look it up and there is another Radio Zaza on there, but it's uh, <gasps> spelt differently. I'll have you know. Well. Um, and so that'll be why. So it's Zaza Radio on Twitter and then it's radio.zaza on Instagram, right?
1: Yes, it is. Um, And yeah.
0: Definitely follow. Like we put up pictures that um we of things we talk about in the episodes. There's a most recent one up at the moment. Uh, episode 10, there's some pretty good photos there of the uh, legendary top-hatted ones, including one of Meg. her top hat so that's pretty cool yeah definitely Um, so you can listen to all
1: the um yeah they'll have links to um anchor fm uh where you can find the podcast on all of all of the channels darling Uh, where all good podcasts are sold all of that um and if you want to uh yeah if you want to get in touch and recommend you know a topic for us to talk about um i'm certainly open to that and as we do episodes uh 12 to 12 to 20 um I can't wait to see what comes out and if there's any recommendations please hit us up
0: yeah very excited I'd love to do some recommended topics absolutely there's only so much I can so much thinking I can do in my little brain so please (laughs) if there's something that you want to hear let us know and we'll do our best to research it but um yeah that's I think it's been a great, great day. Not a great year. Not a great no. year. But um, no, no. yeah, thank you for setting up the uh, the social media. It's really uh, important that people can get in touch. That's really cool. Um, yeah, thank you, Daisy. Thank yeah, you for tweet today. Yeah, babes. Yeah, babes, tweet me. Um, and thank you for listening. It's been a hell of a year, but we'll be back again in the new year with another episode of Queer Stuff. All right, I've been Hannah Bestwick and that's been Daisy TG.
1: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Have a great night.